Villagers in remote parts of Laos are paying a heavy price for following Christ. It can mean being rejected by family, friends and community, losing income and education and even their freedom. On a recent trip we met a number of these brave believers, some of whom are just teenagers. Bun's parents reacted violently when their young daughter accepted Christ. นับเงียกโยตะโลดอันตรงอันดียอเนี่ยนะแต่ก็ยงก็เล่าแบบยงก็เงี่ยงหลอมากเนี่ยหลอเรียงยงเราขันพักเงี่ยนบัดยอดา
What did your family do? At school, Miriam was told that if she believed in Jesus, she couldn't take exams or graduate to go to college. Philip walked two hours to another village to hear the gospel. Just three weeks after he returned home as a new believer, the police paid him a visit. That was only the start of his troubles. Villagers killed his livestock and seized his land forcing him to move to another community. There, the police tried to force him to sign a document to stop him evangelising, but he refused. His children also faced discrimination at school. Why do you keep doing this if it's so difficult to be a Christian? Well, tonight, if you take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, and verse number 10. I wanted to use that video to introduce just a little bit about the persecution that's going on around the world today that Christians face that sometimes we have very little idea that is going on, especially how much so it is going on. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 10, we are in the last Beatitude and the final message in our channel markers series. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the 30-plus years that I've been pastor here, I, to my count, have preached something over 4,000 sermons. Boyne remembers every one of them. 
not to count 172 funerals. And I don't even know how many Sunday school lessons over the course of time. I know you don't remember them because I don't remember them either. There are a few that I do remember because of one reason or another. The message I preached on this passage is one of those that I remember. I preached through the Sermon on the Mount way back in 1996. I remember that as I sat trying to understand this particular passage and what it meant about persecution, I thought to myself, John, you really don't know what it means to be misunderstood and have evil things said of you and thought about you. And then, that very week, I got the only anonymous hate letter I have ever received, at least to this point. I may get four tomorrow, but up to this point. That Sunday, I came to the pulpit, and this is what I said. Well, folks, I got a letter from Satan this week. Oh, I don't believe he wrote it. He just dictated it. It hardly seems possible that at the very same time that I'm working on an exposition of this particular passage, that I received the most scathing, bitter criticism of my ministry, my preaching, my leadership, and even my family were not immune in the barrage that was unleashed. I learned several things that day. Number one, much to my dismay, everybody doesn't like me. I really was under the impression that everybody liked me. Number two, it caused me to remember a quote that I had read from another preacher. His statement pretty much sums up how I felt. He said, a couple of times in my life I've been reviled and lied about. At first I was somewhat overwhelmed to discover what I thought was good, others considered evil. To find out what I thought was mercy, others found objectionable. And to learn what I knew was right, others viewed as grounds for dismissal from a job. I went to God, and I filed a complaint. I said, Lord, they are on my back. They are persecuting me. Now, I expected the Lord would say, my, 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 I feel for you. I want you to know how terrible I feel about all of this. Instead, God said, congratulations. After I received that letter, I think I understood a little bit, just a tiny bit, about what this eighth and final beatitude was talking about. But I'm not sure I like it. This beatitude speaks of a blessing that nobody wants. The blessing of persecution. There are six things about this particular beatitude that make it different, and this is not in your notes. First of all, it is the last beatitude. Secondly, it is the longest beatitude. There are three verses here. Number three, it is the only beatitude that has a command. This command is rejoice. Fourth, it is the only beatitude that has an explanation. It is fifth, the only beatitude that is repeated by Jesus so that we understand better. And number six, it is the only beatitude that is addressed directly to the reader. 
This matter is so important that Jesus even changes from the third person that he's been using with the other Beatitudes when it says, blessed are they, blessed are those. Now he says, blessed are you, second person. In verse 11, in order to focus our attention, we need to look at the practical application here. There are three things I want to draw out from this text tonight. First of all, persecution will endure. This last beatitude is really two in one. A single beatitude that is repeated and expanded. The word persecuted occurs three times in these verses, so it must be important. And the first thing that we take note of is the certainty of persecution. It will happen. You can bank on it. Persecution is a reality. Now, we all know that the early Christians suffered extreme persecution. During the first century, almost all of Jesus' disciples suffered martyrdom for his sake. Multiplied thousands lost their lives in the first 300 years of Christianity. But persecution is still a present reality to many Christians in the third world today. Christians are still being put to death for their faith. We even see it on television these days. In the Sudan, thousands of Christians have been slaughtered and massacred by Muslim armies. In Indonesia, churches have been burned and Christians have been murdered. According to the Open Door Organization, 100 million Christians around the globe are currently suffering persecution for their faith. Most often, persecution takes the form of imprisonment, abuse, and hostility. In some cases, however, the Christians are asked to face more than scorn, more than prison, or the loss of their health. They are asked to face death. John Hanford, who is an aide to Senator Richard Lugger of Indiana, notes on a worldwide basis, Christians are the most persecuted major religion in terms of direct punishment for practicing religious activities, that is, public worship, evangelism, and charity. Then he goes on to note, but we don't know a lot about it because the press, the media, refuses to report it. But Christians in America are not suffering physical persecution for our faith. And then I'll add one word, yet. It could come. But in some ways, we may experience just, a great, just as great a challenge. Not the courage to die for our faith, but the courage to live for our faith. What I really want to draw to your attention is that although in, some in our country preach a prosperity gospel that tickles people's ears, as I alluded to this morning, Jesus preached a persecution gospel. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus warned his disciples to expect persecution. He wrote, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. 
And then Paul, speaking directly to his son in the faith, Timothy, warned that persecution comes to all those who live faithful lives. He said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter warned believers not to be shocked when they are persecuted. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. The second thing that we note is the meaning of persecution. What persecution is not. There is no promise of happiness for those who are being persecuted for being a nuisance, for Christians who have shown themselves to be offensive and difficult, for insulting their co-workers and their neighbors. That's not what we're talking about. The sad reality is that many times Christians are not persecuted for their Christianity, but rather for their lack of it. Neither does the beatitude mean blessed are those who are persecuted for wrongdoing. You cannot claim persecution because you were arrested for shooting an abortionist. Abortion is wrong. I'll go even further and call it what it is. It is a sin. But taking a gun and blowing away a doctor is also a sin. What persecution is. In general, neither does this beatitude apply to trouble that you bring upon yourself. The key to understanding this teaching is in recognizing the significance of the second phrase of verse number 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake. Some people suffer because they make poor decisions. We probably all have been there. We made a poor decision and suffered for it, but that's not persecution. It's simply cause and effect. The overall implication, of course, is that not everyone that claims to be persecuted is actually undergoing persecution. Some are simply suffering the consequences of their own foolish actions. Verse 10 and 11 reveal the various ways in which persecution can come against a believer. There are three words used in this verse to describe this form that the opposition can take. In verse 10 of our text, we are told the overall tactic of the enemy concerning Christians, persecution. The word that is translated persecute in Greek literally means to pursue, to drive, to chase away. Then in verse 11, two more devices of the enemy are revealed when we read, blessed are you when they revile, that's one of them, and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So first is verbal insults revealed in the word revile, which literally means to cast into one's teeth and carries the idea of criticizing severely with the aim of discrediting and then there is also false accusations say all manner of evil against you which means harsh and abusive uh, words usually said behind one's back one crucial word to make sure that we do not miss is the word falsely 
If I get in trouble because I talk too much or because I meddle or because I try to force my faith on other people, that's not persecution. If I am promoting my own cause and men reject me, that's not persecution. If I am arrogant and abusive in my attempt to witness for Christ and people want nothing to do with me, that's not persecution. But if I seek to do his will and honor his name and I suffer, then that is persecution. The second thing we note is the promise that we've been given concerning persecution. Where he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice Jesus does not say theirs will be the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But rather says theirs is the kingdom right now. This is a promise that is not just for the future, but also for the present. As one suffers, as they take a stand for Christ, they get the kingdom of heaven now. They get the presence of God now. You might want to write this scripture down beside point number two. I don't think I included it for you. 1 Peter 4.14. Because it's so relevant here. It says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When we suffer for his name, then we get the power of God now. They get the provision of God now. They get the protection of God now. The third major thing is the position we should take toward persecution, an attitude of joy. Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus promises the reward For being faithful is great, which means not just simply great, but immeasurably great. In verse 12, the follower of Jesus is told to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And the word there that is used, rejoice, is an imperative. In other words, it is a command. If persecution does come our way, not because of stubborn egotism or self-righteous attitude, but because of our stance as a true believer of Christ, then Jesus tells us to rejoice. However, that does not suggest that we should seek or even enjoy persecution. That's perverse. We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever. We are not to sulk like a child, nor are we to lick our wounds in self-pity. We are not called to just grin and bear it like a stoic, nor are we to pretend that we enjoy it. We are called to rejoice and be exceedingly glad, literally to skip and hop with excitement. So how does a Christian rejoice in persecution? One of the things which we can know that will allow us to rejoice in persecution First of all, we can rejoice in persecution because we know that it demonstrates our identity. The point of the latter part of verse 12 where it says, 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, is that persecution identifies us as a part of the faith. If we never experience ridicule, criticism, or rejection because of our faith, we have reason to examine the genuineness of that faith. A few weeks ago, I told you about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who was imprisoned during World War II for his stand against Adolf Hitler and Nazism. He was executed by the direct order of Heinrich Himmler in April of 1945 in Flossenburg concentration camp only a, a few days before it was liberated. But if, while he was in prison, he wrote this. Suffering, then, is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means suffering because we have to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. When the church was persecuted in the book of Acts, it says that when they were released, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's a demonstration of our identity. Secondly, we, re- we can rejoice in persecution because we know that persecution, that God uses persecution to refine us. Peter warns believers that persecution is the furnace in which God refines and purifies us and removes the impurity from our lives. He wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, having much more, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. God uses persecution to refine us. We can also rejoice in persecution because we know it gives us the opportunity to show the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. If everything is going well with you and you are happy and you rejoice, what difference is that between you and all the unbelievers around you? Persecution gives us the opportunity to show the difference that Christ makes in our lives. Number four, we can rejoice in persecution because we know of the promise of rewards. Verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Some Christians consider it less than spiritual to think in terms of rewards. Yet the writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 11, verse 26, that even the great man Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God because he looked to the reward. Jesus reminded all of his fathers that they must determine their values from a perspective of eternity. 
The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, now remember this is the man who's been shipwrecked, beaten, beaten with rods, he has uh, been snake bit, uh, it's just hard to imagine all the things he's been through. And yet he writes this, he said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things <clears throat> which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then number five, we can rejoice in persecution because we know that Jesus is near when we are suffering. The Old Testament tells us that when God's people were in bondage and suffering, that God was mindful of them, according to the book of Exodus. And at the time of the judges, God shared the hurt of his people that he should no longer endure the misery of his people. God is always present when his people are hurting. Think of the courage of the three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were cast into the fiery furnace because of their faith in God, because they refused to bow to a false idol. Yet when the king threw them into the flames, he later looked in, and this is what the king said. Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The angel of his presence is, of course, none other than Jesus. And we have the promise in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the age. And that is never more true than when we suffer for his name's sake. Let me conclude with just saying, when we as Christians can anchor ourselves in those five great truths that we just talked about, we can see a reason to result to rejoice in persecution. Persecution is a demonstration of our identity. God uses persecution in our lives to refine us. Persecution gives us the opportunity to show the difference that Christ makes in a person's life. And because we know that persecution, also there is a promise of rewards. And finally, we can rejoice in persecution because we know that Jesus is near when we are suffering. Let's bow for a word of prayer. First of all, Father, I think we have to admit that we as Christians here in America uh, struggle to understand what persecution is really like. Because if we endure any persecution at all, It's simply people disliking us or rejecting our message or um, not liking to be around us. And 
maybe to insult us, but most of us have never experienced true persecution in the sense that we have been abused and beaten and even faced death because of our faith. Sometimes we struggle with the idea, I wonder if I have enough faith to die for Jesus. And we will never know that until we see ourselves in that position, whether we know we have that kind of faith or not. But we are faced with just as difficult a proposition. Do we have the faith to live for Jesus? To live for Jesus in an age in which it's becoming less and less popular, less and less accepted. In times when we are told that we are intolerant, that we are ignorant, that we uh, just don't lack understanding or we would accept the general mores and uh, values of our world in which we live. Lord, help us to have the courage that we need to uh, stand for you and for the eternal truths that we find in your word, truths that have not changed in the last 2,000 years and will not change in the years yet ahead. It may be increasingly difficult and unpopular to stand for those truths, but help us to be true and help us to be faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.